The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to Podcast for America, a new show from Panoply about the human feeding frenzy of a presidential campaign cycle. I'm Mark Leibovich, chief national correspondent for the New York Times Magazine in Washington, D.C. Joining me in our dazzling DuPont Circle studio is New York Magazine contributing editor Annie Lowry. Hi, Annie. Hey, Mark. And with us from New York City is Alex Wagner, host of the MSNBC program Now with Alex Wagner, coincidence or not. Hi, Alex. <laughs> Hi, Mark. This is great. This is our first podcast for America. We guess we should sort of go around the table, the virtual table, the actual table, and tell everyone who we are and what we're here for. Uh, Podcasts for America is essentially a new podcast predicated on the basic American principle that everyone else has a podcast. Why shouldn't we also have a podcast? But essentially, we are three friends. We decided that we would be a good mix. We would come together every week and talk about some of the things in politics that if we were to say this in the course of our real jobs at respectable networks, magazines, newspapers, we might get in big, big trouble. So we figured that we would actually become a, create our own clearinghouse in a podcast forum for all the things that could embarrass us in a grown-up context and actually sort of do away with it all here. Well, I don't know about you. My reasons are purely selfish. One, I don't have to wear makeup to do this, like my other day job. Two, I was told I could curse. And three, I, I am of the uh, opinion that this may give me an opportunity to talk about Rick Perry and his Jonathan friends and glasses often, <laughs> if not on a weekly basis. See, That's why I'm doing I, this. We are, we are here in the D.C. studio. Alex is in New York. Mark and I are very made up right now. Totally made <laughs> up. We look <laughs> yeah. great. Annie used to sit right behind me in the Washington yeah. bureau of the New York Times Magazine. Annie has overheard every... I think conversation, every like infantilizing conversation I have with my kids, every fight with my wife, oh, yeah. every um, sort of suck upy conversation with the various people that we need to suck up to in the course of our our business. And, and Mark has heard me chewing twenty bites on each side my lunch. That's over true. Over and over and over and mm-hmm. over again. Yeah. One of those yeah. things seems less worse than the other. <laughs> It's true. Ultimately, what it is is banal. But you see, we all have secret lives. And what we're doing here is we're going to enact them in some hopefully self destructive (laughs) way. Strange audio kabuki. Yes. Of humiliation and shame. Yep. So, um, anyway, thanks for tuning in. This is um, hopefully going to be a lot of fun. And hopefully, if it ends our careers, it will do it in a way that makes us memorable. (laughs) Um, Anyway, so we are here. We are launched. Get used to us. First up on today's episode, a brief taxonomy of political evasion. Uh, What we wanted to talk about today is sort of the the kind of questions and non-questions and answers and non-answers that have been all too much in the news lately in the presidential campaign. And one of the pegs to this is that Hillary Clinton, apparently as of, what, two hours ago as of this Mm -hmm. taping, has gone 38,000 consecutive minutes without answering a reporter's question. Uh, Unless that's changed in the last two hours, that continues to be the case. Then Jeb Bush gets tongue-tied when asked about his older brother and the Iraq War. But what is the best way for Republicans to talk about W? We'll offer our unsolicited advice. Also, Mitt Romney steps into the ring with former heavyweight champion Evander Holyfield. Yes, it was for charity, and it benefited a good cause. But did it benefit the dignity of Mitt Romney? And finally, a lightning round we are calling If I Were in Charge. All right, topic one. 
This is Alex Wagner cutting into the podcast with some breaking news. Mark mentioned that at the time of our taping, Hillary Clinton had evaded press questions for 38,000 consecutive minutes. But just hours after we recorded the following segment about Hillary not answering press questions, Hillary answered a few press questions at an impromptu news conference in Iowa. Our larger point about Hillary and other politicians dodging the press still stands, but for the record, Hillary's long cat-and-mouse game with reporters is officially over. Which begs the question, is Podcasts for America the new force for change in American politics? Okay, back to the segment. If I were if I were a communications director for a campaign, I would tell my candidate never to answer a question and especially never to talk to Mark Leibovich or Alex Wagner. <laughs> Interesting. Okay, so this is... Um, why answer questions, right? Why answer questions? I mean, I think because, look, this is democracy. We no, have a vital role. No, but like, role. if you are Hillary Clinton, you have no incentive. You are not like going to raise your profile in the way that like a Scott Walker is. Right. You don't care. What possible upside does she have? Of course she's not answering questions. Okay, so I, I agree with you, Annie. Uh, from a campaign strategy, from the internal mechanisms of a campaign, absolutely don't answer questions. But with the Clintons in particular, there is this shroud of obfuscation and evasiveness that they are working semi-diligently to shed and getting the media on the wrong side of that. Once again, at the start of the campaign, I mean, the Washington Post has a count, not a countdown, a count up clock as to how many minutes she hasn't taken up her reporter's question. And, I, you know, that may all fall by the wayside, ultimately, when she finally does take a question. But there is some sort of alchemy. There is some tipping point here, at which point it becomes a liability and it becomes part of the storyline. I don't think we're there yet. But 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 when, Alex, right? So there is a our, relatively... Our 2000? <laughs> I don't know. There's a relatively small sliver of people who she's at some point going to have to convince to vote for her. We don't know yet, I think. Uh, you guys might, but I do not know yet uh, what topics they're going to care about. We have 18 months until they're going to vote, right? So in the meantime, I, th- I think that her strategy is is to basically hold back and not do anything to try and reach those people quite yet, just to research them. And anything she says is just going to convince people of her awfulness or her greatness. And And the truth is, right now, it seems to me that she has like all of these scandals, these fresh scandals, which I've been kind of astonished that there are new things to say about the Clintons, but there are, because uh, it turns out that they're completely avaricious, right? And and there are new things to say about them because of because of their scandals. But it's not clear to me like how those are reaching that, that small sliver of voters. So she's just not talking. It makes perfect sense. I guess I would ask Mark, you know, she's having these roundtables, these sort of re- meet real Americans in here about their real problems events. And I guess in theory, that's to legitimately hear from real Americans what is bothering them. But it also seems like that's sort of a media exercise, right? So if it's all about staged events and media, and then the media narrative is that you're not taking any questions, I mean, does that even work? It'd be so great if all of those town halls were with, like, the people that have the colanders on their heads and, you know. You know what? Anyway. That would be interesting. No, I mean, look, <laughs> the, what you realize, and this is not unique to the Clintons or Hillary Clinton or, or any, you know, front-running candidate at any point. These people are props. Hillary Clinton... Yeah. You know, is not, I mean, the conversation, the ability to, quote unquote, listen to these people or win over these people is not the idea here. The idea is, you know, are the cameras and the the people recording it, whether they're in the press 
or they are, you know, someone cutting a campaign ad or something. I mean, this is all part of the kabuki that, like, the quote-unquote, re- that the sham of a retail campaign um, is all about. And, and the fact is, look, us bitching and moaning about her not taking our questions is a byproduct partly of the fact that she has no competition. And it's not like someone is going to hold her to account and someone is going to sort of jump in and absorb the vacuum of, of you know, rigorous question answering that uh, that we all crave. Look, I mean, they've made the determination, and I think it's probably, you know, in a purely strategic sense, it's probably accurate that no one really gives a fuck that a bunch of reporters. Hey, that was a swear. It feels so cool. <laughs> the promises uh, are coming but, true. Yes, um, but but the, you know, we're not getting our questions answered. I mean, they would say this is a process issue and and you know yeah we can we can hem and right. all, all we want. and notably i think that the people who have joined this campaign are not really forcing her to say anything either right like martin o'malley is doing fuck all for the clinton campaign at this point and i would even say that like elizabeth warren is having probably some kind of marginal effect maybe maybe a rhetorical effect but it's not clear to me that she's changing anything either Right. Well, but wait, I yep. think we're talking about two different things. One is yeah. the mechanics of a campaign, press ops, press avails, as they call them in the industry, media events featuring normal people. And then the other is Real kind people, of a substantive. Everyday people. Right. Everyday Americans. Right. I think you and mean then the all other piece, normal. what yes. Annie's <laughs> just sort of mentioned is, is dealing with substantive issues in a substantive, detailed fashion. Now, I think some people on the left, just to answer that, have been pleasantly surprised by how aggressively she has been talking about progressive priorities, if not outlining exactly her position. In terms of the, the other piece, though, which is more about the mechanics of a campaign, I'm going to take this moment to put on my tri-corner hat and bemoan the state of our democracy insofar as this is kind of the new status quo, right? I mean, the Republicans are soon going to figure out that answering and take, or or they sort of have, like they they talk to media outlets that they want to talk to. And they happen to have recently gotten grilled by conservative media outlets. But generally, the idea of taking questions and being transparent about where you are and being accessible to the press is something that is not practiced in modern American politics. This White House would rather sit down with Glozell Green than Peter Baker from the New York Times. I mean, there is an issue here with press accessibility and how much we how much we expect from our, our leaders elected or not to give us in the way of question and answer. Right. And, you know, and, and Alex, I think that that's absolutely right. But there's going to be a point at which she is going to put out completely useless, non-indicative policy platforms. Right. Like there was there was time that Barack Obama put them out and Mitt Romney put them out. And we had something substantive to argue over. And there's actually a surprisingly substantive conversation in 2012. Right. But it's just it's going to take which us. Which, of a... course, we will have here on podcast. <laughs> well, we'll we do our best to avoid will. it. Let's be clear. <laughs> but we're not going to. It's not going to happen until the point that she has to put those things out. We are just going to be in the, in my mind, kind of like both horrible and delightful clusterfuck that we are already in. But I would say, look, I would not, I would put all, I would not put all of this on Hillary Clinton. I think the Republicans, in their own clusterfucky kind of way, are, you know, not answering questions. Also, sure. no, I mean, of you know, they, they can all get all, you know, like I said, we have this term "crying gotcha," right? Which yeah. I just wrote a whole thing about. So there's the illusion of symmetry and 
synergy here, right? But um, essentially, no. Any question they don't want to ask, like, oh, the media and their gotcha questions, or, you know, there's now a game where, you know, the entire Republican Party can sort of write off the entire media by saying, oh, that's just the liberal mainstream media. We are dealing with Fox. We're dealing with Breitbart. We're dealing with Newsmax. We're dealing with whoever. So, um, yeah, I mean, that's a form of ducking also. They just need the attention more because there's so many of them and they're not Hillary Clinton. And I think I think Mark is right that what is a gotcha question, right? Like, like I think that that is is kind of the er question from the moment that we are in in the campaign. The is there yeah, and I, that's a that good question. Is there termed as gotcha? Is there are is there so fucking obvious? It's a question like, they don't want to answer. Should we have engaged in the Iraq War or well, that's a what role question. did we play in the creation of ISIS? Um, those are not gotchas. <laughs> like they're well, right, like and the hypothet the 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 issue of a hypothetical question is increasingly becoming one that people candidates don't want to answer, and I personally take issue with that because every single substantive question about what you would do in office is a is hypothetical, hypothetical question. Right. No, absolutely, and 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 hypotheticals are profoundly important. It's how you get to see how people think. The notion that hypothetical questions are somehow less good than other sort of literal questions, you you would be left with very little if you didn't ask. Well, and all policymaking right? is sort of yeah, is based on hypothesis. We think this is probably the right thing to do for our democracy or for healthcare or for the economy, so we're going to do it. No, I think that's a really important point, Alex. Actually, what percentage of questions in general are hypothetical? I... Let's okay. By the way, you can tweet. What percentage of questions would are, be hypothetical? I mean, that's sort of a double meta question, question, right? No, I mean, Mark. what person? If we it's were to be true. asking questions, no, because you could argue that that the notion of a question, which deals with, in most cases, a speculative situation, is hypothetical. Um, if it's not in the past, if, if, if it is at all in the future tense, anything in the past tense isn't yeah. a hypothetical. What are you guys eating for dinner? Right, um, that's, that's well, a hypothetical question. <laughs> well, I don't know if I'm eating dinner, Annie. <laughs> all right, let's end it right there. Send us your hypothetical gotcha questions, whatever that means. Um, our email address is podcastforamerica at gmail.com. Dot com. That's podcastforamerica at gmail.com. Let's move to topic two. Um, early last week, Megyn Kelly of Fox News asked Jeb Bush a seemingly straightforward question about the Iraq war. Knowing what we know now, she said, would you have authorized the invasion? She was talking about Iraq, obviously. What happened next was a series of four different answers over the course of four days. As Bush tracked, then retracked, then backtracked, there was a lot of tracking going on, Alex. Why was it so difficult for Jeb Bush to come up with an answer? It flabbergasts me that he could not, that he had not figured that this was something he was going to be asked. I mean, it's like the number one question you're going to, first is, are you running, Jeb? And then it, the question is, was the Iraq war a mistake? I think he has several problems answering this. And we've seen that in the last week because Jeb Bush does not want to repudiate his brother. He also knows that by saying that it was a mistake to go into Iraq that opens up a Pandora's box of accountability and questions about Dissing the uh, troops. patriotism, I think. Right. I mean, thousands of lives were lost. Right. And then it also <laughs> opens up a further line of questioning about what specifically he would have done differently and maybe how he would have avoided a situation that we happen to be in right now. This week, Ramadi was just taken back by ISIS, which is not a sign of progress in Iraq. So I think it also speaks to a larger Republican issue regarding the war in Iraq. People want to say, oh, things are better now that Saddam Hussein isn't in power. And that's just 
probably patently untrue. And there has been no full accounting, I think, for that mistake. I mean, we really as a country have not sat around the proverbial psychiatrist's office and come to terms with the fact that we went to war based on faulty and fabricated intelligence. How would that work? Like, would we all just like, is there actually a psychiatrist off? Like, There's a giant box of Kleenexes and I guess it's, it's very Twitter. expensive for it's the Twitter. hour. That's sort Incredibly of expensive. Yeah. Also, it's Twitter. The easier position, I think, in some ways has been Rand Paul's position, which is one that he's held for a long time, where he's basically like, this was a disaster and we shouldn't have done it. And once we went in, it was a total disaster. There's obvious reasons that Jeb Bush can't say that. But nevertheless, even if it is a little bit harder for him to contrive an answer, there's an answer to be contrived. And I'm with you, Alex, that I don't understand why he didn't have that contrived already. It's (laughs) not not obvious, right? Like and 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 again, even though it's a little bit more difficult, right? Like so, so Afghanistan again easier. It was a lot more obvious why we went there. Uh, you could argue that we did a lot of good there, but nevertheless, it's it's not impossible to create an answer, as you've seen with other candidates at other times. Although you know, there is actually a perverse part of me that admires his ability to struggle out loud. Uh, yeah. Which is very, very genuine. As a journalist, as someone who is angst ridden, as someone who, you know, yeah. is not as decisive as a politician should be, I'm speaking for myself. Um, you know, it, it's perilous and it's really bad politics, I guess, and it's certainly bad optics, to use that other horrible word. But, you know, he's struggling with it. I, I admire yeah. the fact that he's struggling with it. I mean, no one else does. I mean, we, we live in a time where, where people crave great decisiveness and great clarity in all positions. And look, I mean, I think intuitively most candidates of either party break out into hives when they hear the words knowing what we know now yeah because i mean one it gives them a bit of an out because they can sort of say oh knowing what we know now it's hypothetical because then you get you don't get to do over i mean it gives them all kinds of ducks but i mean ultimately it is a bit of a tricky mind exercise because you know there's probably about a dozen knowing what you know now is that you could ask me about my own say life like for the last year that i might have to sort of struggle out loud in order to you know give you an answer that I thought was like honest. Like the choice to do this podcast. Knowing <laughs> well, that, what you know now. Knowing what I know now, I think the, the answer definitely would be no. But um, can but I ha- just ask though? And I, I'm I'm like, why are we doing this? Well, yeah. well, yes, but yeah. I'll ask that every every episode. Mm. But why is I mean, yeah, I mean, this is I can answer my own question, I guess. But to, I'm I'm impressed and surprised by the the the, the sort of. Um, kid gloves that Jeb Bush is wearing on this. I mean, I, George Bush prevented him and ran well, for president and basically made Jeb Jeb Bush's sort of like the thing he wanted most of all uh, maybe unreachable. Yeah. And, and, and then also created complete chaos while he was in office and basically left office without answering for any of it. And now Jeb Bush has to answer for it. And Jeb Bush is still being the dutiful good son. And I, I guess some in some way, Mark, in the way that you find his hemming and hawing sort of endearing, I, I find it, I guess, laudable that he's so loyal. Well, Alex, like, and I I think that you're right. And he's wearing like 11 pairs of gloves on this one, right? So it's his brother. Um, It is like a person who remains a profoundly gravitational magnetic figure in his party. And on top of that, I think it's worth stepping back and saying that like the decision to go into Iraq was fucking bonkers. 
Like 50 years from now, we are going to be looking back and saying like, I, I think that it's still not adequately explained why we went and did that. And it seems to be one of these funny things where, where at some point you're relying on psychology and, and the personal narratives of the people that were in the White House and in the Defense Department and a couple other places at the time. But I think it's worth noting that, that part of the reason why this is hard for him to talk about is that it was an insane fucking thing to do. And we're still grappling with that. And I think it's worth noting that, like, Jeb Bush is in a, in a remarkably weird position because it was his, you know, his fucking relative who did it. Yeah, that. and to add another chapter to the book of dumb shit political calculations, the Republicans wanted this to be a foreign policy election, like, two weeks ago. Yeah. I mean, and, like, here you go, dude. Here, here you are, Jeb Bush, at an event when a college student is going to come up to you and say to your face, your brother created ISIS. That's what it means to have a foreign policy election. And they seem caught completely flat-footed. Well, what's also interesting is that not only are they flat-footed, but like no one knows how the conversation is going to play out just because there's so damn many of them, right? I mean, the media, it's true. I mean, we we don't know, you know, whether to tear them, whether to take this person seriously, that person seriously. Um, I mean, the actual logistics of getting the stage set up for this debate to take place is itself, I think, a great little sideshow. Now, this transition is going to prove that I'm very, very quickly getting the hang of this hosting thing. Uh, We were talking earlier about the wearing of gloves, um, which brings us to topic three, the wearing of gloves. Uh, Last Friday night, Mitt Romney stepped into the ring and fought five times heavyweight boxing champion of the world, Evander Holyfield. The event raised over a million dollars for Charity Vision. That's a charity that actually pays for site restoration uh, operations for, for poor people around the world. But more importantly, it provided us with an opportunity to stare at the 68-year-old former Massachusetts governor's glistening pectorals. Alex, you're on record as saying that Mitt Romney is your favorite humanoid of all time. <laughs> I've never heard you speak <laughs> on the glistening pectorals. Yeah, humanoid pectorals. presidential candidate, let's uh, be clear. Uh, yes. Because okay, you guys good. are my favorite humanoids but, of all okay, time. Okay, well, you know, I'm going to actually like mark out the script right now. Presidential candidate. I know you watched the fight. I mean, I won't ask how much you paid for it on pay-per-view. Um, but uh, what was your reaction, Alex? Okay, my initial reaction was, I don't know if you guys are familiar with the meme dad bod, but Mitt yeah. Romney <laughs> does not have a dad bod. I just heard that I do not think day. it is an exaggeration, Mark Leibovich of the New York Times to say that he had glistening pectorals. The uh, man is fit. He is fit. And you it, obviously watch this a lot more closely than I, I did. But, but you are at MSNBC. So well, well, that is true. MSNBC. Really I, again, today. I hate to cross promote here, but MSNBC owned this story. I mean, this is what, one of the great stories. What Casey of Hunt the, gave like what like the, a two-hour report campaign. on this or something? She she sparred in boxing she gloves did. with Mitt Romney, and it was fantastic. Uh, here's here's what I want to say about Mitt Romney. The, uh, the moments like this are why he's incredible. I mean, Jeb Bush is not going to take his shirt off and fight the former heavyweight champion of the world. Was was Evander Holyfield the former? Yes, five uh, yes, times. Yes, he was. The man whose ear that Mike Tyson bit off. I mean, when I first heard about this happening, I thought, no, it can't be. This can't really be happening. Then there was a promotional video. There was the weigh-in. He came in on into the ring in a suit and tie and ripped it off. <laughs> and then at it the end, great. and then at the end, he ran, he ran away from Evander Holyfield after you know sort of putting up his dukes a couple times. Mitt Romney is seen running around the like ring a away. Little bitch. 
I think that's the <laughs> I official say that. I didn't term. say that. No, so he but, has no shame. The man as, has as no shame. As much as it aggrieves me to compliment Mark, Mark had an amazing interview with Mitt Romney, which I'm gonna I'm gonna quote here. So in <sighs> so, which he we're so, so cross referential <laughs> so here. Good here. He he asked him, "Will you get in?" Holy Fields face. Sorry, I'm getting silly. And talk trash. To which Mitt Romney replies, "I will get in Evander's face with compliments and good <laughs> and humor." Later, <laughs> and the reason Saint Lucia asks, "Will you actually wear trunks in the ring?" And Mitt Romney replies, I'm very pleased that Under Armour has graciously agreed to sponsor the bout. They've graciously sent me their apparel, apparel items, which I, I have will avail myself, myself oh. of. That was such a great, uh, the, the, the terminology the there, weirdest. apparel avail yourself of. He refers Ending to on a sports as sport. sport. He's yes, like a he French speaker from the 1800s. He's like small wonder been grew transported up. today and is trying to convince us that he's from Utah. Uh, by the way, can he's I, incredible. We all miss him. You know it. It is oh, true. so good. No, we, it, there is something, there is a lot to be said for any politician who has achieved the ultimate I don't give a fuck stage of his career. I mean, Mitt Romney, he swore up and down when we talked. He was he was talking about women. He was talking about, <laughs> you know, how much he had to drink the night before. That That's <laughs> No, that's not that's true. That's a joke. Um, he also, by the way, actually, I should just say, too, as a point of clarification, the phrase running around like a little bitch is <laughs> something that Mike Tyson said of Evander Holyfield after the chaos of him biting his ear off. off. So now I want to make sure that if that quote goes viral, it's in the proper context. Let's be clear. Anyone in the media that is parsing this, Mm -hmm. that was not Annie Lowry or Alex Wagner. Totally with you, Mark, that there's nothing better than a politician in his don't give a fuck phase, right? Mm -hmm. So Barack Obama is in this phase now. Kind of. Ish. Yeah. Ish. Within the constraints of, of being actually in the office of the presidency, but he's running around, he's drinking coffee, he is saying things much more candidly than he ever would have. He is like, for instance, I, I actually thought, you know, it was only what in, in the past week or two that he, he came out and he kind of tartly said that Elizabeth Warren is a politician, which is actually something, you know, she she's a politician. And she is not. That uh, Saint Elizabeth, (laughs) but 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 it's true, and and now it seems like Mitt Romney is firmly in the space that he is not running for president, and he's just going to do what he wants, and it's amazing. Can we just stop for a moment? That the the thing that the the not giving a fuck stage of Mitt Romney's career is getting into the ring with Evander Holyfield. The craziness of that—it's not like he's talking frankly about the Mormon faith, or he's you know. I don't know, like skydiving, like yeah, but he's getting into the ring with the heavyweight. Champ. Yeah. I mean, the, this is like really this is one step beyond, beyond what we expected. This is I think, dancing of with Mitt the stars, Romney. right? I mean, oh this my, yeah. which well, one? That, oh, I mean, that would be true. We have then to television could shut down somehow. if I that happened. I would also, I would note that that in George W. Bush's <laughs> "Don't Give a Fuck" phase, all he's been doing has been painting cats. It's or, really or invading right. Iraq. It's, that's such yeah. a good point, Annie. It's that is very such a good quiet. point. It's so different than what he's giving <laughs> away the paintings too. I believe he just gave away a painting to Sheldon Adelson. He really? gave a Bush original to Sheldon Adelson last week. He's a generous painter. How do you think Mitt Romney like 
maintains that physique. I mean, he told me he doesn't really work out that much. I mean, That's he, that is not true. He, he works was out on all the, time. the elliptical. You think he's had he like had work to have on... the elliptical machine brought up, disassembled from the basement of the hotel gym to his hotel room on the campaign trail, according but, to one very well placed source. I would believe that MSNBC. he has like microdermabrasion really? and other non-surgical things that make. What's you wrong with microdermabrasion, think... Annie? What does that no, mean? No, no, I'm just saying that that's. Wait, wait, wait. What is a microdermabrasion? It's they put like as <laughs> I, should... I understand it. I didn't go to an. They Ivy rub League your college. face with small rocks, <laughs> and it makes you look like a baby. I... It's resurfacing. Everyone, <laughs> everyone should try it. Wait, what? Yeah, I, okay. yeah. it's like it's non-surgical, chem- it's like but a, it makes you look younger. It's like a loofah, a very, very Man, strong loofah. I need yeah. some of that. You know what that's um, about. So I I would say that that Mitt has had non-surgical work done, right? So I my guess is that he has not had like Botox, but my guess is that he has had um, other things that JLo has had done to her face. No, actually, you know what? Mitt just has he's going to look this good at eighty six. He looks incredible, he looks great. you guys. He looks great. Give it to him. He's he a does great not have dad bod. Um, he looks incredible. Okay, now you know, look, I I can't speak for all of us, but I think we could talk about Mitt Romney in his boxing career for a good long time, um, except that MSNBC has already done that. So <laughs> we're going to segue out of this. And, and we'll continue cl- to do it too, Leibovich. <laughs> we'll continue to do it, absolutely. And you know what? It's been some of your best programming in a it's long, been some of long, our long time. Thanks. Thanks, dude. Sorry. Thanks for sorry. that. Uh, Oops. This podcast is going to go oh, really true. well. No, 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 no. It's, it's part of the career-ending ethic. Um, so to close out, the podcast for America, which, by the way, I don't think we've fully emphasized how patriotic we intend to be in this thing in the course of this show. But uh, this is going to be mostly for America, but even more so for us. We're going to have it. We're going to we're going to initiate a new segment called "If I Were in Charge," in which we go around the table, literally and figuratively, and talk about something that we would do if, in fact, we were in charge. We will start with our friend Alex Wagner in New York. I I have many things. I'll start with um, campaign polling. There is no point to poll anybody and ask them at this at this moment who they would vote for for president. It needs to end. It's useless and a waste of time. On a a parallel note, people need to stop talking about Elizabeth Warren running for president. It's not happening. Please stop suggesting it. Very good. Annie? So harem pants. That's probably a good one. (laughs) <laughs> I have like a personal thing. Talk more about that. Yeah, they're just like they're kind of ugly, and it also seems like it limits the way in which you walk. But but more more uh, for our purposes, one thing that I would everything is for our purposes. Annie. Is is polls that treat Washington D.C. like a state, and so D.C. always comes in first or last. You see this all the time, in which people are like, "Oh, D.C. is such an outlier," and it's like, "No, no, it's not a state. That's it's an urban area. That's the reason that it always comes in fifty first first that's what that's that's what's annoying me today uh you know what annoys me today the press and their use of like like nanny words like oh the bush campaign is staying mum on his iraq answer or (laughs) then an interview between Rand paul and whoever became testy um oh and then it became potty mouth and then, this is something else I would really love to do away with. Have you noticed that on Twitter, whenever someone says something sort of nice or sort of gracious, there's like a whole race of people trying to call it classy? Oh, that's so classy. Oh, that's the classiest thing in the world. Um, also, words like prickly and cordial. Can I add um, a word to that, Mark? Oh, you can add several it's words. It's a word that I have struggle with just saying because yeah, it's, sure. it's sort of it's hard to say. But politicization. Ugh, Everything is the politicization 
of the Iraq War. Well, you know, the Iraq War is a fairly political subject. The politicization of the Roman Catholic Church. Well, religion is a fairly political topic. It just seems to me like um, a useless word and one that is becoming more frequent in our well, everyday it's, it's hard because parlance. like things really that are not naturally political are getting politicized. But everything's right? political, isn't it? I right. mean, harem no, pants like, are political. I, what? They they really are. Oh, That's a very good point. This is something Alex. I don't no, but, know. But, but, but we are. We're in a world in which things that are not naturally broken down on political ri- lines get broken down on political lines. But when things that obviously are broken down on political lines, like Iraq or harem pants, you know, don't use the word then. I agree with you. That concludes our first podcast for America. We guarantee you we'll get better. Our producer is Mike Volo. Thanks also to Laura Mayer and Andy Bowers at Panoply. Please let us know what you think of the show. You'll find us on Twitter at Pod for America. Our email address is podcastforamerica at gmail.com. Again, Twitter at Pod for America. Email podcastforamerica at gmail.com. And if you like the show, please be sure to tell a friend and subscribe to us in iTunes, Stitcher, and your favorite podcast app. And don't forget to leave us a rating or comment whenever you subscribe. It helps other people discover our show or avoid it. Uh, for Annie Lowry and Alex Wagner, I'm Mark Leibovich in Washington. We'll talk to you next time, and thanks so much for listening. <laughs>